Last week, we set aside our time together in 2 Corinthians and, and enjoyed a time of worship centered around Thanksgiving. It was our fifth Sunday PTA service, and so we were able to enjoy a lot of testimony from you, which was a big blessing to me, and thank you for that, and then finish up our service with communion. But prior to last week, we've been really proceeding verse by verse through 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Uh, all the way through, we've gone through the letters verse by verse, and, and which followed a time where we set the groundwork uh, for a biblical worldview of money and material things. And following that overview, we've worked our way through these two chapters. We've titled a New Testament standard for giving uh, and God's, uh, God's plan for you and how you're to manage all of that. And we finished verse 15 of chapter 9 last time, and so we have finished our time in those two chapters. We're looking forward to picking up in chapter 10. Those two chapters really contain 39 verses that dealt with free will giving, uh, not commanded, from the heart, single-minded, generous, sacrificial, all of those things, out of trust, out of our obedience, out of faith, uh, worship, and love. Those kinds of things mark the giving in the New Testament. We saw that very clearly in our, in our time together. And as you saw, the teaching here is very clear. It's not obscure in any way. It, as you work your way through, you can kind of see as he set up the Macedonians as the, as the snapshot of what it looks like to give, and then he gives some instructions, he gave an example, gives some instructions, and then he gives the promises that come along with following those things, just like the, uh, the Bible does all the way through. It gives us a command, it gives us a promise that goes along with the obeying of that command. And so my prayer for you is the same prayer Paul had for the Corinthians, that you'll just put it into practice, because we don't teach the Bible verse by verse in a vacuum. We, when we understand what it says and we put it to work, that's the way we grow uh, spiritually and in maturity. And so the question is, as we've said before, then why do people continue to say, um, I thought we were supposed to give 10%? And we see that often, and, and some of you have said that to me, and, and it's, it's not an unusual question. It's the traditional Christian response. If there was one, if you think about giving, it'll be okay 10%. But if you think about it, both the Hebrew and Greek words for tithe just simply mean a tenth part. It's a mathematical equation. And many believers would say, when they think about that, if I say, well, why do you think it should be 10%? It's part of what we teach in our Be the Church class so people understand where we are. Well, Abraham gave 10%, they would say. And then another common one would be the Jewish people gave 10%. So that must be God's standard. That's what's thought. And so uh, that's a typical response. We, we hear it a lot. It's not unusual. But one of the problems with that thought is, is that as we went through chapters 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians, neither the Macedonians or the Corinthians are ever given that instruction. We don't see that instruction at any point. If you back up into 1 Corinthians chapter 16, where Paul says on Sunday when I come, make sure that you've already taken up the giving and you are ready to give when I arrive. And so we don't see any of that teaching all the way through uh, those passages we just looked at. So the question is, why do some people still believe they need to give 10%? And and I, in a nutshell, I'm going to sum it up here, but we'll, we'll get into it in just a moment. Um, basically, it comes from a mix-up of an, our understanding of the New Testament and of the Old Testament. And, I, and as we said a few times, as we touched on this topic throughout our study, I'd like to use this time to and next time to make the mix-up clear. It's going to take us two back-to-backs to help us understand how to pull all this together. And I think that you'll enjoy it. It'll be important because the Bible, it, the, the Lord expects us to know what the Word says and why it says and you may have relatives that say, oh, no, you know, I know at that church you don't teach 10%, but that's, that's what you're supposed to do. And so you'll know why you believe what you believe, and you can explain uh, to people and help them understand how it actually works. So then when we get all that straightened out, we can really get on with applying what we've learned and won't default back to perhaps what we've always heard or what we've always been told. So, but as a footnote, 
you can build a large church if you just convince people to actually give a tenth. And, and people have, have done that. But to give that in perspective, uh, givers only make up about 20% of any congregation. And there's, I, I, this is all documented. If you want to know the sites, I'll give you them afterwards. I just won't bore you with all of that. But there have been a number of studies that have come out that show that if you took every adult American evangelical and you reduced everybody's income down to the poverty level, and then everybody gave 10% for the poverty level, uh, ministry giving would actually go up 300% in the U.S. So obviously there's a problem with what we always thought we were supposed to do and what's actually occurring. In reality, and on tw in 2019 statistics, on average, Christians give just 2.5% of their income to churches. And, and of course, these are averages, and they're all, they're all documented, and you can, you can know this later. But, but during the Great per Depression, this might be interesting to you, uh, people gave 3.3% during the Great Depression. Individuals spend, on average, four times as much on credit card interest as they give, on average. 50% of those who go to church give absolutely nothing at all. And out of every $1 given to ministry, 78 cents comes from those 55 or older. Now, just to make that relevant, um, if you just look at the source and not the amount, so just the source, not, not how much is being given, but just where it's coming from, Generation X, 1965 to 1980, make up 19% of all donors and account for 26.6% of the population. Generation Y, 1981 to 1997, are 7.1% of donors and 30.4% of the population. Millennials, ages 24 to 39, are 11% of donors and 20% of the population. The greatest generation, 1900 to 1927, the silent generation, 1928 to 1945, and boomers make up 78.8% of total church giving, but only represent 18% of the population. Now, I gave you those statistics all the way back in April without any kind of relevant teaching from the scripture to help you understand perhaps why that's the case. And we went through credit and all that kind of thing and why, why people use it and what they do with retirement and all, this, all that kind of stuff. And, and now, given what you know about New Testament giving, which, beloved, you're, you're an expert on that. If you've been with us and you've listened, you know how this is supposed to work. Here's the question for you. If everyone in the church gave like you do, and I'm not talking about differences in salaries and incomes, okay? I'm not talking about maybe somebody has a really big income, so they give a lot. What I'm talking about is, as we understand 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, if everyone gave in the proportion and at the level of sacrifice and at the level of faithfulness that you do, here's the question, would ministry be able to continue? Be honest. That's a hard question to hear, isn't it? But you should be able to answer that question, and, and you may already know the answer to it, and you may have realized for the first time over the last eight months, your life needs to be fixed. And maybe you've started fixing that. And that's, of course, my prayer for you, is that if that, you fall into that category, if what you give in proportion and in relation to sacrifice and generosity was like everybody else, then would the church be able to survive? And the answer would be no, right? Let's be real. For some of us, if, we give, if everybody else gave like we do, we wouldn't be able to do it. So, and, and here's another thing I think you want to think about as we think about this 10%. Even with all the push to give 10%, and that's a very big push, and most people would say that's their default mode, 
as you just saw, very, very few actually do that or give anywhere near that amount. And that by itself is an interesting concept because, we're, and we're not going to deal with this today, but, but if, if everyone thought it was commanded 10% but aren't doing it or anywhere near it, but that's what they're telling everybody they should do, that, that's a whole problem in and of itself, isn't it? If you thought it was 10% and, and not only are you nowhere near it, you don't do it at all. That, that's a huge problem by itself, okay, which we won't deal with. It's, and I think you can see that issue. But back to our topic. So uh, the reasoning for 10% then, as, as, we, as we have that as a default mode, usually goes something like this. People will say, you know, in the Law of Moses, we read that, that the Jews were supposed to give a tenth. And the thought is that that's what they gave, so consequently that's what we are to give. Although nowhere in the New Testament do we see any instruction specifying that the church is supposed to give a tenth. People will still say it. And, and we'll see in this study that, that the Jews gave several tenths, not just one. So there's a problem there with that statement, and we'll look at that later. But further, people will say, you know, Abraham gave a tenth so before the law. So giving a tenth goes beyond the law. if It transcends it, if you will. It was in place before the law. Therefore, it's still in place after the law. Therefore, it's the standard of giving that is universal. So... If you say that, and then you use that as a template to lay that over your Bible, that's going to create a big problem. Because if you say, because something existed before the law, it must naturally exist after the law, you're going to run into some serious snags. The first one would be the Sabbath observance, right? I mean, the seventh day of the week was holy to the Lord from creation, so it came before the law, correct? And it was included in the Ten Commandments. It's the fourth one. And so it's pretty important, God's top ten. But it clearly does not extend into the New Covenant. In fact, Colossians chapter 2, verse 16 is pretty clear. As we think about that whole thing, there was a lot of dis, uh, discourse going on, just like there is with 10%, whether or not the Sabbath is holy and all that going on in the new church. And we see Colossians from Paul. He says, therefore, let uh, no one's to act as your judge in regard to food. Uh, and this is going to deal with what's clean and what's not clean and all the things that had to do with the Old Testament purity laws. Or drink, or in respect to a festival, again, having to do with Old Testament festivals, or a new moon, or a Sabbath day. There's ours. Verse 17, therefore, th these things which are mere shadow of what's to come, but the substance belongs to Jesus. So what's the summary there? All, all those things that they just talked about, and he, it's not an exhaustive list, but it just takes in kind of a broad, I think, uh, a, a swath of that. All those things pointed to Jesus or were fulfilled or will be fulfilled in Jesus. So Jesus has come, and, and those things that people are judging one another are food and the drink and the... And the and uh, the holy days and the Sabbath and all that kind of stuff, they were fulfilled in him. Christ rose on the first day of the week. We know that. And Acts 20, verse 7 says, the disciples began to meet on the first day of the week, and we continue to meet on the first day of the week because why? Jesus rose on the first day of the week. And, and when the Jesus, uh, you know, Jewish leaders were giving Jesus a hard time about all of this, of course, and Luke chapter 6, verse 1, Luke records for us, it happened that he, that's Jesus, was passing through some grain fields on the Sabbath and so you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. You're not supposed to harvest anything, do anything. They had even more laws connected to that, how far you could walk and all of that. But the fact of the matter is the disciples are picking the heads of grain. They're rubbing them in their hands and eating the grains. So they're rubbing off the chaff, and, and they're hungry, and they're eating. But some of the Pharisees are watching, and they said, you know, why do you do what's not lawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus answers them, saying, have you not even read what David did when he was hungry? And he and those who were with him, he, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for any to eat except the priests alone. And he gave it to his companions too. And he was saying to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. In other words, the exact same thing we just saw in Colossians. Everything's fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is Lord of all of that. 
And so if you think about it, just because there was an observance of the Sabbath before the law doesn't mean the law, uh, during the law, doesn't mean it's universal. The second one I think that would be a snag for you is the sacrificial system. Uh, there was a system of animal sacrifices to God all the way back to Cain and Abel. We don't know the parameters of that. We think it was, it was probably free will, and we'll look at that in just a minute, but they were certainly there. And, and you have a sacrifice happening way before the law, uh, and certainly during the time of the law, we had a whole sacrificial system set up and all the regulations connected to it. We see that all over the place, and certainly during the time then, but obviously it does not continue into the new covenant. It's not universal. We didn't build a sacrificial altar here at Berean, and then you bring your, your, your lambs and your no, because it all was summed up in Christ, wasn't it? We understand Jesus was the sacrificial lamb, and that uh, ended that sacrificial system and the requirement for it. However, uh, to, be, to be truthful, when we get into the millennial reign of Christ, we know that they're going to reinstitute sacrifices as a memorial, and so there's going to be a joy in all of that, and we'll see, and we'll refer that to that from time to time. But to say that, you know, something, to say that Abraham, Abraham gave 10% before the law and the Jews gave 10% during the time of the law, so we should give 10% uh, after the law, that just doesn't hold up. That's argument that's full of holes and you have a lot of snags there but there's a better there's a better answer than that tithing before giving of the law and tithing during the time of the mosaic law are two different things and there are two different kinds of giving in god's economy and this is important to make this distinction and this will help you understand how this is all supposed to wash out and why there's confusion connected to this uh, the first type of giving is required giving and the second is voluntary giving and as you work your way through the Old and New Testament, you will see in the Old Testament these two things, and then you'll see voluntary giving in the New Testament and something else in the New Testament, too, that replaces a required giving. And when we understand the difference between these two types of, of giving, the mix-up is straightened out. So as we're going to work through here, I want you to have some footing here because this might be new to you. You might still have some trouble figuring out, okay, what am I supposed to do? It's very hard to hear a type of New Testament giving that the Macedonians did, as Paul explained it, and then to adopt that into your system because it requires you to trust the Lord. It requires all your hope to be in him and your security is found in him and, and all of that stuff, not connected to what you have in your bank account and all of that. And that the Lord knows your choices and he knows your resources. And so when you evaluate, realize that he knows that, that Jesus is still watching offerings just like he did at, at the temple time. And, and, he, and he, he evaluates them according to the heart. And so we, we understand that and, and we want to mix up this, uh, straighten out this mix up we're going to do some Q&A that kind of help us do that and help you get settled into this understanding of the two types of giving. So the first question is this, and maybe this will help you get a handhold. In the time before Moses, mark this, was there voluntary giving? And this is the type of giving we've been talking about over the last several months. Uh, you know, free will, single-minded, from the heart, out of thanksgiving, out of obedience. Was there that type of giving before the Mosaic Law? And the answer to that is yes. And we'll just look at a few uh, passages to help us get our footing. You can copy these down, just place in your notes. You can copy the passage down and the basic idea around it. So was there voluntary, was there free will giving? Yes, there was. Genesis 43, 7, 4, 4, 3 through 7. Now, some of these I'd like you to turn to. So have your Bible ready. It's important that you get used to doing that too. Uh, some of these will be a great um, side marker right in your Bible, perhaps, or in your notepad or your phone. Uh, many of those allow you to take notes. Genesis 4, verse 3. This is our first offering. It's an important one to point out. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. And Abel, verse 4, on his part also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering he had no regard. And you know the story, don't you? Um, so Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Verse 6, then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your countenance fallen? 
Verse 7, if you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin's crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. We know what happened after that. We won't read that. It's not pertinent to our study right now. Just that this is the first offering we see. As you work your way through the Old Testament, it's important to pick up on these notes. And so here, there's no requirement that we know of. At least the Lord hasn't given any requirement or frequency. And it's important to note that the Bible didn't give us any indication that there was some frequency. It was voluntary. That's all we know. The only requirement we know for sure is that God had revealed that it was supposed to be what? An animal. Okay? So apparently it was supposed to be an animal. Cain knew that. He didn't do right. And so the Lord didn't accept it. So we knew it was supposed to be an animal, but it was just, we don't know that any other requirement besides that or frequency, and that it was voluntary. Now let's look at our second offering. So that's free will giving in the Old Testament before the law. Uh, Genesis 8.20 is our second offering. This is Noah after the flood. So Noah has spent more than a year in the ark. Uh, he has uh, finally come to rest. The ark has on the mountains of Ararat. He sent out the dove the first time, sent out the dove the second time, didn't come back, and he knew he was able to go out. The Lord opened the door, and he comes out. And right after he comes out, verse 20 says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. So as you read that, you realize, you know, that Noah wanted to make an offering of thanks and gratitude to God. And what was he making a thanks and gratitude for? Surviving. Makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, you were trapped in an ark for over a year. The Lord destroyed every living thing with breath in their lungs all over the face of the earth. But you and your family were delivered and sat down, and you came out, and so he makes this offering, Lord of thanks, no doubt for surviving, and he makes an offering, it says, of every clean animal, so God had made that distinction to him sometime in the past, we don't know when, but he had told him even to take in more of the clean animals, so there would be enough, and so obviously uh, Noah understands this, it, it was voluntary, so there's no percentage required, the offering wasn't commanded, we don't see it repeated over and over again, it was just a free will offering from the heart, a thankful expression to the Lord. That's all we have from it. How about Genesis chapter 12, verse 7? This is our third offering as you work your way through the Old Testament. And then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, this is Abram after God's promise to him. He says, to your descendants I'll give this land. So he built an altar and there to the Lord who had appeared to him. So he builds an, offer, uh, an altar and it's in response to that promise. It expresses his joy and his anticipation and his trust and his obedience and his thankfulness. All of this is expressed in the offering. It wasn't commanded. We don't see any percentage that was required. And he does it again in Genesis chapter 13. So it's just a spontaneous offering to the Lord out of thankfulness and a grateful heart and anticipation and trust of what the Lord would do. And then we come to the word tithe for the first time, and that's in Genesis chapter 14, verse 18. This has to do with Melchizedek, and you probably remember this story. Melchizedek, perhaps uh, Christophany, uh, perhaps that just pointed us to Christ's office. We don't really know. We just know that he was, he was told that he, we were told that he was priest of the Most High God. So this time in, in uh, Abraham's life is after the Canaanite kings took Lot, and, and Abraham had sought out those around to say, hey, can we go collect Lot and his family, and nobody wanted to do it, so he got his whole family together, all of his the people in his household, and he goes, and he, and he, he takes Lot back, and, and a huge capture of a lot of stuff, and the Lord really blesses the effort, and, uh, and verse 18 says, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, now he was a priest of God most high, we don't have any other explanation there, and so we just know that's who he is, so we just take that at face value. Abraham recognized that was the case. 
And so he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And then he, that's Abram, gave him a tenth of all. Now, notice, it's from Abram's gratefulness and his thankfulness, his goodness, uh, the goodness of God to grant him victory, because uh, Melchizedek points that out. And, and here's this priest of the Most High God, and, and through him, Abram realizes he can offer thanks to God. Um, he's the priest of the Most High God. Abram says, this is the perfect time to thank God. This is a guy who can make sure that that uh, goes in the right direction. So what's he do? He, he gives a tithe. Uh, he wasn't commanded to do it by God. God didn't say it has to be 10%. We don't see any of that there. Uh, Abram lived 160 years. And beloved, this is the only time it was recorded that he gave a tithe in 160 years. Not every week, not every month, nor was it even a tenth of his wealth, actually, because Hebrews 7.4 clarifies that for us and says, now observe how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth, what's it say? Of his choicest spoils. So it wasn't even every, out of everything he had, it was what he captured, and then a tenth of the best of that he offered as a thanksgiving offering to the Lord through Melchizedek. Now, Genesis 28 is our, our next mention of a tithe, and it is also free will. It's, it's out of a heart, but it's also an example of how not to say thank you to God, and so I'm going to include it here. And the context in Genesis 28, you can turn here if you want, is, is that Isaac has sent Jacob away to Padam Haran uh, after he has stolen the blessing from his brother Esau. Uh, he could see a world war coming inside of his family, and he wanted to make sure they didn't kill each other off. And Esau was intent on making sure that um, Jacob was going to be killed. And he also didn't want Jacob to take a wife from, from uh, the nations around them like Esau had done. So Jacob goes to Padan Haram. He is on his way. He spends the night, and he has this dream, and you remember it. It's, it's the ladder, and angels are coming down to earth, and they're going back up to earth. And then the Lord comes to him in the dream and reiterates to him the promise he had given to Abraham. And so he awakens from the dream, and that's where we pick up our text. In verse 18, it says, So Jacob rose early in the morning. And he took the stone that he put under his head, and he set it up as a pillar, and he poured oil on top of it, and he called the name of the place Bethel. However, previously the name of the city had been Lutz. Verse 20, then Jacob made a vow saying, now mark it, how this all kind of comes out. It's very Jacobian, in my opinion. Um, if God will be with me and will keep me on this journey that I take and will give me food to eat and garments to wear, and, verse 21, I return to my father's house in safety, then the Lord will be my God. Verse 22, this stone, which I have set up as a pillar, will be God's house, and all that I give, uh, you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. Now, that's not how to give a thanksgiving gift to God, okay? In other words, I'm only going to give you a tenth if God fulfills his end of the bargain, okay? I have to be safe, and I have to everything I need, and then you bring me back to the land, and, and all that stuff, and then you'll be my God, and then I'll give you, I'll give you a tenth. Okay, but you can see even in the midst of all these stuff that it's free will. It's not commanded. And, and we can see even with just a few, very few examples as we've been through, there was voluntary giving before the time of the law. We could have gone to a lot more, okay? And I think you can see this. But let's continue our Q&A. So here's the second question. Stick with me on this. Now, question. In the time before Moses, was there required giving? So we know there was free will giving in the time before the law, Okay. Now, in the time before Moses, was there required giving? In other words, it's not optional. Giving that was commanded. And the answer to that is, yes, there was. And let's look at a few passages just to help us get our footing. We'll just stick right here in Genesis. 
And, and here in Genesis 41, 29, this, this is a passage you're familiar with. I'm just taking a, a, just a sampling out of it because of time's sake. But Joseph is interpreting Pharaoh's dream. You remember this? Pharaoh, Pharaoh had a very disturbing dream about cows and corn. And he went back to sleep, and he, and he had a, a, another part of it again. He said, you know, it was confirmed. He knew the Lord was trying to tell him something. He didn't know what it was. He searches the kingdom. Who can tell us about dreams? And somebody remembers this dude in prison who did it one time, and it came out. And so, like, they, they pull him out. They shave his head. They get him ready. They put him up before Pharaoh. And he gives them the interpretation of the dream. And, and part of it is, behold, seven years of great abundance are coming in all the land of Egypt. And then he goes on to say, and then there will be seven famine years, and it will be very hard. And... And so we won't read the whole thing for time's sake, but uh, you could call this next section the Egyptian IRS. So this is the beginning of some required giving. One-fifth of the produce, collecting 20% of the income of the land to fund the government so it could provide for the people during the famine years. And guess who initiated the Egyptian IRS? The Lord did. Because Joseph said, I don't, I'm not able to do anything. Only the Lord's able to do this through me. Uh, Jacob hears the dream, and then he says what the Lord wants him to say, and so you have this, uh, this uh, thing initiated by God, and as, as the famine started and continued, we see people coming to Joseph, and, and here's what he says, uh, Joseph in chapter 47, verse 23, he says, then Joseph said to the people, behold, I have today brought you and your, and your land for Pharaoh, now I bought you and your land for Pharaoh, now here is seed for you, and you may sow the land, at, at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be for your own seed and for the field and for your food and for those of your household and as food for your little ones. So 20% is supposed to go to take care of uh, them in the famine years, and that's precisely what went on. So this is required giving. This is not optional. It was commanded by God through jo uh, Joseph for the people. You had to do it. It was compulsory. And what did it do? It funded the government. To sum up then, uh, before the law of Moses, voluntary free will giving was directed towards God. It was out of love and out of thankfulness and consecration. There was no pressure to bear. They didn't have to do it. It was, it was free of double-mindedness. It was a heart, except for Jacob. Jacob, I would, cons would consider a little double-minded there. If you do this, then I'll do that. But for the rest of them, it's without double-mindedness, just like we've seen. It was heart-giving that was generous and sacrificial and, and out of thanksgiving. Uh, there were some parameters, an animal for Cain and Abel and a clean animal for Noah. And that shouldn't surprise us because in free will giving now, there are some parameters, are there not? Because the Lord says, you know, I know your resources and I know your, your choices and we're supposed to give in proportion and the Lord uh, knows all of this, not just whatever you want to do, see? And it has to be, you know, without compulsion and without guilt. It has to be a joyful. So there's some, there's some parameters, but it's part of the Lord just saying, okay, this is free will, but it's not whatever you want to do. There are some things uh, that help you understand how to go about it in a correct way. And these things were there as well. And then required giving was directed towards the government, as we saw with Jacob before the law, it was commanded taxation to support the government and its functions. Now, let's go to our next question. Stick with me. Help us sort through all of these things. In the time during the law of Moses, so after it was given, uh, the law of Moses, was there required giving? And the answer is, and that's giving that's commanded, yes, there was. There was required giving during the time of the law. Let's look at a few passages that'll help us. Leviticus, we'll start there. Some of this will be familiar to you, some will be, uh, will be new, but I think it'll be enriching for you to see how all this works out. Thus, all the tithe of the land 
of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the tree is the Lord's, all of it. And it is, so tenth is a mathematical term, a tenth of the seed, a tenth of the, la- uh, the fruit of the land, that's the Lord's, it's holy to the Lord. If therefore a man wishes to redeem part of his tithe, he shall add to it one-fifth of it for every tenth part of a herd or flock or whatever passes under the rod, a tenth one shall be holy to the Lord. So this is called, this is our word tithe. It's required 10% and it's given to the Levites. They were the government. They maintained the government. They made the decisions. They were the judges. They were the men of wisdom. wisdom. Uh, They were the priests. They gave the leadership over the people. And so the people were required to give 10% per year to those who maintained and ran the government, the theocracy. Okay? A democracy or a constitutional republic like the United States is a nation where the people choose their leaders and support them with taxes. A theocracy is a nation led by God, and he chooses the leaders and the people pay to support them. And as a footnote... In the millennial kingdom, we'll get to see a little bit of what, about what a theocracy looks like. It's likely, even though you'll be in a glorified body and serving the Lord somewhere, we know that Jesus will rule in Jerusalem. We know from numerous passages that he will require all the nations to come during certain times of the year, and they're going to bring their offerings, and it'll be required. And if you don't, there's not going to be rain on your land and all those kinds of things. If you've read that, you understand that. So he's gonna, Jesus is going to choose some leaders to rule under him, and perhaps some who said in this room now will be some of those people who will be doing something in that theocracy. But now mark this. This, this tithe, tithe is said to belong to the Lord, and it was given through the priests who ruled in his theocratic kingdom. It was required. And you can see from the next few verses, if the Jews wanted to give money instead, as we saw just a minute ago, there were some formulas. If, you didn't, if there was a tenth and something you wanted to keep, like some, some bullock or some uh, ram or something, you wanted to keep it, but it belonged to the Lord, uh, you could exchange it for money, and you had to add a fifth of the value on top of that. So they could figure out what was owed, what was required. Uh, what's important to understand, however, is, is, is the first tithe that, that required giving was 10% of produce and seed and animals of the people. That was not free will giving, like we saw in the last two instances of a tithe before the law. This was required. And if you didn't pay it, you were robbing God. And that's exactly what the next verse says in Malachi 3, 8. Will a man rob God? So in the old economy, during the tithing, and then we'll also see free will offering. Both are going to be mentioned here, but we haven't got to free will offering yet. Will a man rob God? And that's how Malachi works. It's, it's asked a question, and the people say, oh, we didn't do that. And then he says, yes, you have, and here's how. And so it's just a question and answer all the way through, and here's one of them. Will a man rob God, yet you're robbing me? But you say, how, are, how have we robbed you? Well, in tithes and offerings. You're cursed with a curse. You're robbing me, the whole nation of you. Verse 10, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house, and test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven, and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. So this is a form of taxation. So with Leviticus 27, and it's repeated in Numbers 18, so it's very clear, the Jews started with a 10% tax. And even in required giving, Lord blessed when they did it. So just like every other command in the Old and New Testament, there's blessing connected with just obeying it, okay? But it was required, it wasn't optional, but that wasn't it, okay, that's the start. Then you skip to Deuteronomy 14, if you wanna turn there, you can. And we looked at this before, but we'll, we'll read it again. Here's, here's, uh, here's another one. He says, you shall surely tithe all the produce from what you sow, which comes out of the field every year. You shall eat it in the presence of your God at the place where he chooses to establish his name. 
the tithe of your grain, your new wine, your oil, your firstborn of your herd, your flock, so that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. Verse 24, if the distance is so great that you're not able to bring the tithe since the place where the Lord your God chooses to set his name is too far away from you, when the Lord your God blesses you, verse 25, then you shall exchange it for money and bind the money in your hand and go to the place which the Lord your God chooses. Verse 26, you may spend the money for whatever your heart desires, for oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink or whatever your heart desires, and there you shall eat it in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. Also, you shall not neglect the Levite who is in your town, for he has no portion or inheritance among you. So God has set up another tithe to be brought to the festivals that he's ordained. So this is separate from the first one that was given to the Levites to support the government. So all the national celebrations, all the ceremonies, they were required to bring a tenth of everything they had to those events, in addition, of course, to the Le Levitical tithe. So they're required to give 10% for the organization and the administration of the theocracy, and then they're to give 10% for the celebration of the festivals, uh, the fellowship potluck, if you will. And if you have a lot, and that 10% ends up being a huge herd or whatever, or a lot of grain or a lot of fruit, then you don't have to load it into 100 wagons and drive it to Jerusalem. You're allowed to exchange it for money, and then it says what? Bind the money in your hand. In other words, don't spend it on anything else, and you bring it with you, and you come to the festival, and you celebrate with everybody there, and don't forget the, the Levite that's in your town. Bring him along too. Make sure he can celebrate, and just be generous. And during these times of celebration and national holidays, make sure that you bring this so that the people can rejoice in my presence because I've blessed them. And that's actually what it says. It says when he, if, if, if the place the Lord said his name is too far away from you, when the Lord your God blesses you. See, it's, it's assumed that you're going to be obedient and that you'll have more than you need. And even in having more than you need, you'll still be able to give and still be good. Okay. So these are very important things to think about. So that's a second 10%, but that's not it. Deuteronomy 14:28. At the end of every third year, you shall bring out all the tithes of your produce in that year, and you shall deposit it in your town. The Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance among you, and the alien and the orphan and the widow who are in your town, shall come and eat and be satisfied in order that the Lord your God may bless you and all the work of your hand which you do. So every third year, they had to give another 10%. So approximately three and a third percent per year, if you're just figuring it out. Uh, and this is a welfare tithe for the poor. And I know that you know some of this because I, I foreshadowed some of this for you. So it's a little bit of a review, but if, if, so if you have this required giving, 10% uh, for the government and 10% for the festivals and three and a third percent for the poor. So that's 23 and a third percent required giving per year. So back to the argument where you say, for those who say, you know, the Jews gave 10%, so we should, that's incorrect. The Jews didn't give 10%. We're at 23 and a third, but we're still not done. Before the law, required giving was taxation. That's Joseph. During the law, required giving was taxation. That's the Jews. It should never be confused with free will giving because it isn't the same. That's why Malachi divides them. Bring the storehouse tithe and the offering, both. And we're going to talk about offering later. Those things, beloved, you know, this national festivals, you know, support of the Levites, we, we don't do that, do we? We don't have national festivals anymore. We're not supposed to come to Jerusalem and celebrate. You know, we don't have a theocracy anymore. We don't give to national festivals. We don't storehouse tithe for the poor. Those things are in the Old Testament. Uh, they are tithes, required giving. Now, just as a uh, just kind of foreshadowing, we do have things in our culture that are similar to these things, do we not? And how do we pay them? Taxes. Now, tuck that away because we're going to bring that back, okay? 
And Romans chapter 13 talks about that, doesn't it? So, back to the Jew. That was not all they were required to pay. We're at 23 and a third percent. Now, Deuteronomy 15, this is what I, I like to call the borrower's relief tax. This is the borrower's relief tax, okay? Kind of sounds like a liberal government up in Washington, right? You just figure out all kinds of cool names for just another way to get your dollar. But this is from the Lord. This is the borrower's relief tax. Here's, a, here's how it goes. And this may, may apply, may not apply, greater or lesser extent, depending on where you are and what you do. But it's still part of the burden that they had to bear, the required giving, okay? So verse 1 says, at the end of every season, uh, every seven years, rather, you shall grant a remission of debt. Ruh row. This is the manner of remission. Every creditor shall release what he has loaned to his neighbor. He shall not exact it from his neighbor and his brother because the Lord's remission market has been proclaimed. So do you think it's optional? If you looked at the Jewish history, you would think it was optional, but it wasn't optional. The Lord's remission has been proclaimed. So what's that mean? Well, that could be a considerable amount owed that was no longer able to be collected. Depending on your position, if you had a lot of extra and you're helping people who are having a hard time, perhaps they had a hard crop and, and they need to borrow some money for seed or whatever, and they borrow it from you and then they plant, of course, there's a long process here. You're planting it and then you're going to harvest it and you hope it comes to the end. It covers all your bills and you've got to pay back. So you can imagine how bad the temptation would be, and you're already thinking about this, right? If you, you have more, enough, more than enough and somebody needs something and you're loaning it to them and they want to borrow it from you, what might you be figuring? How long is it to the seventh year right because if it's the sixth year and somebody comes and says hey i i need to borrow you know a hundred shekels of gold because i am in a, a world of hurt and you're thinking a hundred shekels of gold in a year i gotta forgive this debt oh no that i i don't i don't think look at the time i don't have time I, you know i i got someplace to go right i don't want to let this guy borrow right before the seventh year right i won't get my money back and so people would try, they would try to avoid this supposed sting of this borrower's relief tax. But the Lord deals with that, and he says, and you can imagine, he says in verse 9, he says, beware that there's no base thought in your heart. In other words, the lowest possible imagination you can have. This is not something you want to broadcast, okay? There's no base thought in your heart saying, because you're not going to say this out loud because it would be very unspiritual. But you're saying it to yourself, the seventh year, the year of remission is near, and your eye is hostile towards your poor brother, and you give him nothing, that he may cry to the Lord against you and mark it. It will be a sin in you. You shall give generously, you shall generously give to him, and your heart shall not be grieved when you give to him. Why? And this is not a surprise if you've been with us. Because for this thing, what? The Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all your undertakings. Is that a surprise to you, beloved? Not a bit, is it? Because it's precisely what we see all the time. Does it, does, it, does it surprise you that God owns it all and he's generous and meets and gives and abundantly to people and that it catches his attention and you have a special love for you? We saw in 2 Corinthians for those who are generous and an open-handedness from God to those who are generous. So it shouldn't surprise you it's the same here. Do you think he knows that this guy's coming to you one year before the remission year? Could he be doing that on purpose? Perhaps. Is that your problem? No, because if he needs it, you're supposed to what? And if you do, what does the Lord promise to do? He'll bless you in all your work and all your undertakings. Everything you had came from the Lord anyway. Was your security in all the stuff that you had? Never. We're not replacing him with the things that he gives, right? So God's generous. He owns it all. He meets all the needs. And he's very generous, and he loves those who meet needs. But this is a tax, 
And it could be large, depending on what you do. How about Leviticus 19.9? This is what we can call the profit-sharing tax. So this is on top of the 23 and a third percent. These could apply in all kinds of different ways, these ones. Here's what it says. Now, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap in the very corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest, nor shall you glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather the fallen fruit of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the needy and for the stranger. I'm the Lord your God. So in other words, I've said it. It's the very same like the remission of the Lord has been proclaimed. He's ending it in the same way. I've told you to do this. And I'm, the, I'm God. So what's that mean? Well, you leave that, all that stuff. Who are you taking care of when you do that? What's it say? Those who are less fortunate, those who are poor. Now, we've already taken up giving to cover that, right? That's, that's the three and a third percent per year just for the poor. But here, you're leaving stuff in the corners of your field. You're not taking your harvesters up into the corners of your field. Uh, you're not picking up stuff that falls off the wagon. You're not going back through the crops and gathering every single thing. Kind of like you do in your garden, you know, you're, you're, you're picking cherry tomatoes. You're picking the ones that are the best, you take them to the house, right? But there's still some hanging on there, but you plan on going back. Some are still a little green, some whatever, might have a mark on them, but you don't want that in your salad. And you're going to go back. But here, you're not to go back, see? And, and this is to take care of those who are less fortunate. Does the Lord care about people who are less fortunate? Apparently, because we see it pretty often, don't we? And who does he take care of them through? Me and you. If we have more than we need, right? And that could be a pretty large amount of produce. If you had a lot of fields, that could end up being a lot of olives. It could be a lot of uh, grapes. It could be a ton of grain because you're not going in the corners. If it falls off the wagon, you're not picking it up. If it's already fallen from your trees, you're not supposed to pick it up. It's supposed to lay there. So that's the profit-sharing tax. Who knows how much that could add up to. According to Exodus 38:26, mark this. A half shekel was assessed to 600,000-plus 20-year-old men and above in order to make sockets for the tabernacle. Did you know that same assessment continued through Jesus' day and it was called the temple tax? A half shekel per year per male over 20. So that's on top of everything we've already seen. And there was also this extra welfare tax. And for uh, tree huggers, it was environmentally friendly. Exodus 23.10, you shall sow your land for six years and gather in its yield but on the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow so that the needy of your people may eat. And whatever they leave, the beast of the field may eat, and you are to do the same with your vineyard and with your olive grove. Now, I, I need you to imagine that for me. Every seven years, that's an entire year's worth of earnings that are forfeited for you. And when people talked about that, Moses was pretty clear from the Lord, you won't even need it because what you're harvesting now is overtaking what's still in your barn, and you're going to have to throw that out in order to make room for the new. Remember, if you, if you obey me, I'm going, to, I'm going to give you more than you need. So this isn't a problem unless you're greedy, okay? But this is an entire year's worth of earnings forfeited. And one of the reasons the, the Jewish people were kicked out of the land, did you know, is because they didn't do this. It's not like an option. And so you add all these things together, beloved, obviously, you're not coming up with 10%. So to say Abraham gave 10%, which in 160 years he did one time, but not of everything, and to say that the Jews gave 10%, it's just, it's just a mix-up, okay? That's not God's standard. And so I, I think we can put that to rest, don't you? But, but even with that understanding, did the Lord bless required giving? Yes, he did. Even though it was something he said, I proclaim this, when you do it, I'll bless you. 
And he, and he promised his people that he would, they would have all that they needed, even under the requirement he had given them, if they'd just obey. Now, we're out of time, and, and that's what I thought we would be at this point. So here's the next question. Here's the question. Was there voluntary giving? That's free will giving during the time of the law. We, we know that there was because Malachi said there was, didn't he? He said bring the tithes and the offerings, two different things. So we know there was, and the answer then is yes. Is there free will giving during the time of the law? So on top of everything else, the required giving, that took care of all of those things in the theocracy and the poor and, and, and going to the festivals and all the things we talked about, see? And, and again, more to the poor and more to the less fortunate and all of that. On top of all of that, was there free will giving? Did the Lord still, you know, accept free will giving from his people and did it still happen yes it did and we're going to look at that time that next time and we're going to pull all this together because this will really be the string that kind of sips that up for you i think because when you see this you'll understand why we've been teaching free will giving all along because that's what the new testament teaches we don't see anything about a tithe in the new testament we see a lot about uh the lord wanting us to be generous and we're so we're able to kind of put to rest i think this idea that that the tithe, the 10%, is supposed to translate here from Abraham or from, from the Jews. Free will giving, we're going to look at it next time. Before I, I let you go, I'm just going to give you a little story. And this is, um, I don't often do this at the end, but I wanted to, I thought that it, it, uh, it applied. This is from Dr. Elmer Towns. And for those of you who, who had him, it, you, you probably, like me, always groaned when he went into story time. Because that could take up a huge amount of class. And... Uh, most of his stories were snoozers, so we, we didn't want to pay attention to him, okay? I love Dr. Elmer Towns. He's been very instrumental in the life of liberty and, and in my own life as well. And, and some stories that were so uh, personal I, uh, were really a blessing to me over the years. But this one, I remember, I remembered sketches of it, but somebody had written it down because so many people heard it, so it's, it's not like it's a secret. So it goes like this. It's who owns your French fries. That's his story. You go into this who owns your French fries story. And it's a story of a man who buys his little boy some french fries. And, and the father does what all fathers do when the french fries come for his little boy. What? Come on. Am I the only one who grabs one? Okay. Everybody grabs one, okay? It's your kid's french fry. You get one. My boys, you know, they were quite old before they realized, you know, that's not automatic. You know, that, that's not like you're due. You know what I mean? I mean, they were just, they were all, you know, I grabbed it anyway. First drink, first french fry, all that. You know, but so the father takes the french fry and uh, he's going to taste it. Little boy protests and says, you know, uh, don't touch my french fries. And, and the father's surprised that his son would say that. Uh, the father knows that he bought the french fries. They all belong to him. And the father knows the son belongs to him. And, and the father could get angry and, you know, just never buy his son another french fry again or you know, teach him a lesson or he could just bury him in french fries if he wanted to and make him french, sick of french fries. You know, he could do all of that if he wanted to. But the father thinks, you know, why is my son like this? I've given him a whole package of French fries, and I just want one. And in the same way Towns would say this, he would say, you know, God's given us our resources. And when he shows us how he expects us to handle it, people figuratively slap his hand away and say, this is mine. And it's precisely the same issue, isn't it? God owns everything we have, provides it all. He owns us. In his generosity, he's given us everything that we have. And then we, when he gives us a very, very open-handed, open-hearted way to go about giving back, we, we figured we'd slap his hand away. And we've done it for years. And this is not where we need to be, right? I mean, God owns everything. and He wants us to manage it, what we have, in a way that brings him glory by giving generously and sacrificially in a manner and a portion of what he's given. And that's not, un, that's not unreasonable, is it? 
And so we're going to see that and kind of tie all that together next time, and I hope it's a blessing for you. But let's pray and be dismissed right now. Father, we thank you today for being able to be together. I'm grateful for the fellowship that comes with believers to come together and share together in the difficulty of of, uh, walking with the Lord in this world. The joy of sharing that burden and knowing that each of us uh, share similar burdens like that and the cares and things that come along with walking in holiness in a world that's wicked, dealing with bad news in, in, a, in a way that's glorifying to you. It's just so great to have fellowship with one another, be able to share those burdens together and be able to be uplifted in prayer. We're grateful for that. Grateful too for, for the people who serve here who are serving downstairs now, perhaps for the second time, maybe, for the second Sunday school, or a nursery, or people who are walking around in the safety team, uh, taking care of everything. Lord, we're so grateful for the faithfulness going above and beyond, fervent in, in their duty and, and, their, and their help to the church. Lord, so grateful. I, know, I, I pray that you'll bless them. I know that you have. You will. I know that, that they're laying up treasure in heaven that doesn't fade away. And they'll be able to glorify you because of their sincerity and their service to you over the years of their life. But Lord, I pray that you bless them and encourage them knowing that they're appreciated. Now, Father, we also thank you for your word. We're grateful for its, its clarity. You expect us to know it. It's not a surprise to know that it might require some digging to figure out how it all worked out. But you've written it down so clearly. You've exalted your word equal to your own name. It's all profitable for doctrine, reproof, and correction, and instruction in righteousness that we may be thoroughly furnished for every good work. And so, Father, we thank you for that, and we thank you for the time we could spend in it. And I pray that you'll give us understanding, illumine our hearts that we might be able to put it together and how we should be responding, because that's really what you're interested in. How are we going to respond? We show our love to you by obeying your commandments, and your commandments are not burdensome. They're for our good, for our blessing, for our growth that we might resemble Christ. So, Father, in all these things that we do here in the prayer time we spend where we come before you humbly, recognizing that we are in the servant's position and you are in the master's position, and when we come and give of what you've so abundantly given us, we worship you that way, and when we read your word and when we sing, we we exalt you in your name and your position and your attributes. So for all those things, we're, we're grateful. We're grateful we could come and do that today. Take us to your word again tomorrow and every day of this week that we might know what you have to say and hold the holy standard up before ourselves that we might walk in that way and be conformed. And when we see things that you've done, help us to praise you for them. And then, Father, help us to carry out the great commission, which is which we do to bring you glory. Tell of your salvation through Jesus because that's your great glory. Uh, the cross and the dominion of death has ended We're so grateful for that. So help us to be about that great commission and the great commandment of loving our neighbors as ourself. We don't have to talk about it, racism, or anything else. We just do the very greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and your neighbor as yourself. Just be those kinds of people. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said. Amen.